The viewpoints expressed on Night Fright are not necessarily those of the host, the staff, the sponsors, or the affiliate stations. Tonight's program may contain graphic themes or images. Viewer discretion is advised. Showtime. Welcome to the show. I'm Brent Holland and welcome one and all to Night Fright. Get the coffee going, get the tea going, get a beverage of your choice going. It's time to settle in and relax. Get in your most comfy chair, kick your feet back, and get ready for one heck of a ride. Guess who's here tonight? You're going to be recognizing this face right now as I point to the wrong side. <laughs> We're live, baby. Anything goes. Peter Levend is here tonight, folks. Let me read this little... Uh, bit of a, a synopsis to what's going to happen tonight. Peter Lavenda joins us tonight, we've already said that, to discuss his new book trilogy, Sinister Forces, Volumes 1 through 3. And I need an extra hand to do this. You know that, eh, Peter? Um, yep. Thank God you didn't write five books. No, I'm just teasing you. It's Peter's thesis, so seriously, folks, that something far more than, as he calls it, a matrix of politics and violence made up the horrors of the 20th century. Something more was behind that. Perhaps what Peter calls the occult. Peter believes the long string of human atrocities are linked intrinsically together. Kind of like players from a script, but a script, folks, written in blood. Tonight we're going to delve into, you ready? Charles Manson and the family. The Tate LaBianca murder connections to the Bobby Kennedy assassination and the connection to his purported assassin, Sirhan Sirhan. We're going to look at legendary blues songwriter Robert Johnson and his connection all the way through to the Rolling Stones and then to Mark David Chapman and the assassination of none other than John Lennon. Also, we will look at something Peter calls political witchcraft. Now, Peter Lavenda, folks, has been on the show multitude of times. You will find his shows in the www.nightfrightshow.com website. In the archives, also, you will find the links to his three books there as well. Just click on the book covers, and we'll take you right to a spot where you can order them from the comfort of your own home. Peter is one of the premier researchers, folks. Um, in the industry, Peter Lavenda has made use of the Freedom of Information Act to gain information on the U.S. government's involvement on using its people as human test subjects. Okay, let's jump in right away, Peter. Thanks for joining us, by the way. Oh, well, thanks for inviting me. Glad to be back. It's nice to have you back. Are you in Florida? Yes, I am. Okay, if it wasn't summer, you'd have 35 million Canadians on a bus to your place right now. <laughs> 
They were here, believe me. <laughs> they were in the back room, actually. Hockey sticks and toques to go. Okay. <laughs> Something very ominous I read, I didn't know about you, in book two from Sinister Forces. Um, where is it? Book two, A Warm Gun. And that is something about the black, the men in black. Now, this shocked me that you had a real encounter with the real guys. Can you tell the folks about that? Yeah, it was quite odd, and it stayed with me for a, a very long time, especially because at the time I was not really involved in anything remotely connected with ufology. I mean, I wasn't a flying saucer guy. I wasn't out there talking up UFOs or anything like that. So I wasn't quite sure what the connection was, and uh, but it, nonetheless, it happened. I was living in Rhode Island at the time. I had uh, just come back from a, uh, a shopping trip. Uh, I had parked the car. I was taking groceries out of the car, and uh, this old black Cadillac pulls up in front of uh, my house, and uh, I can see that the driver is aiming a camera at me, one of those uh, sort of telephoto lenses, those big black lenses is aimed right at me. And I'm thinking, what is this all about? You know, and I put down the, the, the bag of groceries that I have and I start walking over to the car to ask them what's going on. And the car takes off. So I go back. I'm I'm just I, I, I don't know what else to do. I jump in my I want to jump in my car, pull out and follow this car. It just seemed very sinister suddenly. You have to understand that where I was living in New England, in Rhode Island, was not really remote, but it wasn't uh, the middle of a metropolis either. It was a country road, basically. My house was set back from the road, That's so you crazy. had a kind of a, a, a driveway going down where the mailbox was, you know. And it was a, a, a road that just went on into the, uh, into the rest of Rhode Island. It wasn't a, a main highway at all. So I'm going to my car. I'm going to follow them uh, to see what's going on. And another car appears, uh, pulls in behind my car, effectively blocking me, not allowing me to get out of my driveway. And there are two ladies in this car. And uh, they open the doors and they get out, which I thought was strange because they're just going to ask me directions, right? You don't get out of your car to ask somebody directions, I think, right? Roll down the window. or You just roll down the window and say, you know. So they're dressed a little oddly. They're not dressed... Uh, in current fashion, let's say. They were sort of wearing cloth coats, um, sort of 1950s era, I would say, that sort of thing. Their their whole uh, affect was sort of old-fashioned. And they looked at me very sweetly. I mean, the driver uh, looked at me very sweetly and asked me, did I know where De Vilbis lived? De Vilbis was the name. Very, very specific. And I looked at it, I'm very agitated because I want to follow the other car. And I said, no, I, I really don't. And they said, okay. And they got back in their car and they left and that was it. I mean, it was far too late for me to follow the, the first car. And at that moment, it didn't occur to me to follow the second car. I thought they were just some, you know, dizzy people looking for DeVilbis. And then it occurred to me to look up DeVilbis because the name had resonance for me for a different reason. So I go and I'm looking through the... the the uh, phone books and everything else. There's no person named DeVilbus in the entire state of Rhode Island. Okay. So who could they have been looking for? Well, I was reminded the name popped into my head because someone I used to work with uh, who had worked actually at Huntsville, Alabama, uh, where NASA was 
was running their operations, and he knew a lot of the rocket people. He was now working and living in uh, in Rhode Island for another company that I used to work for, which I was not working for at the time. And he had recommended me to contact this company in Ohio called DeVilbis, which is a strange name, right? It's D-E-V-I-L-B-I-S. And that happened months, months previous to this. Obviously, there was no DeVilbis in Rhode Island. The closest DeVilbis I knew was in Ohio. So they weren't on the way to see anyone called DeVilbis. And then as I'm going back and going over the name and trying to figure out what this was all about, you know, I, I'm interested in etymology, I'm interested in words and that sort of thing. And I realized DeVilbis is devil, B-I-S, B-I-S being the standard abbreviation for repeat or again, right? As you will do in, in literature. Uh, if you're an academic, you'll see this, B-I-S. So there's DeVilbis, there's the devil once again. Now, I'm not sure that's really was intended, but for some reason that name was pulled out. Okay, you would think that was the end of the story. I was a little freaked by it, and this, the time frame was we were just getting into the Listen, first... Listen, Peter, I read it and I was a little freaked. <laughs> yeah, it's a little strange. It was a little strange and it's, it's stuck with me all this time. So it was the beginning of the Gulf War, which is when this happened, and I'm thinking to myself, have I gotten onto somebody's list? Is this a federal government kind of thing? Am I being, you know, in a very clumsy way spied on? Or was this like an intimidation thing? You know, I've been researching books for a long time. Uh, I was just coming out uh, later on, a year or two after that, with my first book on Holy Alliance. But I had been researching the material that would become Sinister Forces. Um, so I was doing a lot of that. I was writing novels as well. So I was very deeply involved in, in writing at this time. And I'm racking my brains. This is before the internet, per se. Mm -hmm. This is the time when the best you had was the bulletin board system, the BBS, where it was a dial-up thing, and you got into somebody else's computer in their house. You know, very, very primitive. So it wasn't like I was doing these vast internet Google searches, you know, and researching all the wrong words. So I couldn't figure out what this was. Okay, we fast forward years, maybe ten years, and uh, I was based for a long time in Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia. Um, working for another company. And I was in charge of international business, international trade for this company. So I was doing a lot of traveling. And I'm dragging myself through the airport in Singapore, Changi Airport. And I'm kind of tired and I've been traveling all over the place. And I'm sort of dragging my suitcase behind me. And I'm going through this airport. And as I do it, somebody taps me on the shoulder. I turn around to see who's tapping me on the shoulder, and it's the driver, it's the woman from that experience that I had back in Rhode Island a decade earlier. And she sort of waves at me sweetly, as she did previously, just the sort of expression, waves and turns around and continues on. Well, of course I follow, and she just disappeared. I mean, I don't know where she went. There were no gates at that area. This was just this long promenade with all of the various shops. And I, you know, I went past all of them looking, and I, I didn't find her. I didn't know what that was all about. It was just like, here we are, we're still here. And uh, since then, I haven't been able to put this together. I don't know what that means. I don't know what those, I mean, it, it, I asked people that I knew in intelligence kind of work, and I said, you know, two cars, four people. There were two people in the, in the black caddy. There were two people in this other car, which, as I recall, was a kind of a, station wagon, one of those old-fashioned, you know, wood-paneled, you know, station wagons. That's how I remember it somehow. 
Um, so two and two, two cars, two people in each, four people, that's kind of expensive um, to mount if that's a surveillance operation, you know. So most people said no, they, they didn't, you know, they didn't know it. And I asked people and they couldn't find any anything or they wouldn't tell me if there was anything where anyone was looking for me. So I have no idea what that meant, but it was the, it was the black Cadillac, you know. It was the old-fashioned black Cadillac with two guys in it taking photographs and then followed by an old car, you know, with two old-fashioned dressed women who were quite young, actually. I would say 20s to 30. They looked sort of mansonoid, if you get me. Um, yeah, I do, yeah. So I, I have no idea. Was it a cult, you know? Was it, uh, was so, it the men in black? You know, I don't know. Yeah, it would have freaked me out. Completely, yeah. especially meeting that woman again, the same woman, some that years was, later. Yeah, that was yeah. right. That was stunning. Yeah, that's really, um, you know, playing the odds against that, that's for sure. Peter Levend is joining us tonight, folks. We just heard a real story about real men and women in black, without question. Now, that was a good segue into Charlie Manson. Folks, the name Charlie Manson, Charles Manson, is synonymous with that of a completely insane murderer, who is incapable of empathy. Now, I was wondering, Peter, can we talk a little bit about Manson, the family? Um, we'll go right into the Tate LaBianca murders, then to Bobby Kennedy's assassination, which, of course, leads to Sirhan Sirhan's MKUltra Earl, Uri Geller and metallic voice and remote viewing. Can we cover all that? How much <laughs> time we got? Uh, yeah, I know, I know, I know. Uh, well, we'll do our best. Yeah, um, just uh, I'll do a ticker lock. How's that? No, no, no. Don't worry about that. Jump in any time because I can. I can be long-winded. Believe me. That's fine. No uh, worries. Sinister Forces itself, the trilogy, really was inspired by the mystique around Charles Manson. Um, there's a lot about uh, Charles Manson in the popular culture, but more than that, I was. Um, I first became aware of the weird connections between Manson and so many other things because of a, a two-part article in the Village Voice back in the 60s, I guess it was, uh, by a journalist called Craig Carpel. And he, he had been kind of well-known. He'd been writing for uh, Playboy and for the Village Voice and for Ramparts, the old Ramparts, which was one of my favorite magazines. Uh, but he had written this two-part series, and it was called Political Witchcraft. So this is what, what became the inspiration for Sinister Forces. And that's when I started to really research this subject was back in the Village Voice days when Carpel had, uh, had published this two-part series. So we're talking 1969, maybe, something like that. Uh, night, no, would have been later than that, 69, 70. It was during Nixon and after Manson, but Nixon was still there. So 1970, maybe. And I thought to myself, he had made a very strong case that there was a lot of coincidences and synchronicities around Charles Manson. Mm -hmm. And between Charles Manson and Richard Nixon, Walt Disney, of all things, and all sorts of other stuff, he had tied all these things in together because of the dates, because of the August dates of the Tate-LaBianca killings, yeah. and which coincided with the date that Nixon would resign, uh, which coincided with uh, the date they opened the haunted house ride at Disneyland. So all of these dates were coming together, and Carpel was, was sort of a tongue-in-cheek thing, but I thought to myself, no, there's something here. Let me look a little further. And I became very much involved in researching Charles Manson, the family, all the various members, uh, Manson's own history, 
which fascinated me. And it, uh, it inspired me actually to go and retrace some of the steps that he took in his earliest days. Uh, he had been brought up in Ashland, Kentucky. And this was a major nexus for me. I didn't realize it at the time, but I was going to go and take a look and just you know pass through. Uh, other serial killers had been born and raised in that general area. Uh, you had uh, Bobby Joe Long, I think, was brought up in, uh, in West Virginia, right across the border in Canova uh, from Ashland. So I'm starting to think, you know, was there something in the water, right? Uh, let me just take a look. And I drove down, uh, had a very harrowing uh, trip through West Virginia, which is a story for another time, and uh, passed, uh, passed through Canova and looked around at the towns. And I'm getting this feeling that this is, you know, a depressed, financially depressed area, economically depressed and kind of remote at that time I was doing the research. And got into Ashland, Kentucky, where Manson had spent his first years of his life. And the first thing you really notice uh, going around the bend into Ashland is number one, Ashland chemical. There's a huge petrochemical plant there which is belching fumes into the air, or it was at that time that I was doing this research. Um, and that right away was a little, uh, was a little you know, sinister looking to me. Uh, this very bucolic countryside, and there's this massive, you know, sort of Blade Runner-like thing sitting there, which is full of lights and sounds and noxious fumes and all of it. So then I get into the town itself of Ashland, and there is a, a, a park in the middle they call Central Park, and it's filled with Indian burial mounds. Well, that threw me in a whole completely different direction, and I'm thinking Manson must have played in this park when he was a kid. The town's not that big. And uh, it was a lot smaller then when he was a kid. And I imagine this, this was the kind of place his, his mother would have taken him or one of the people care, for caring for him. And he would have spent some time on the Indian burial mounds. And so I started to research the mounds. I started to research Ashland and a lot of strange stuff about that town. A lot of weird things went on there, uh, including one enormous house that they moved from its uh, original location to uh, an alignment with the burial mounds. Hmm. It was a large apartment building. It's not like a small wood frame house. This was a large house with several entrances and several floors, and it was brick. And they actually moved this house, uh, picked it up and moved it. And at the very top of the house on the roof, there are two griffins. And uh, I took photographs of that. I think they're in the book. There are two griffins sort of facing each other, you know. And Ashland had actually printed a small booklet about their town. And one of the things they said in the booklet was that, well, they're, they're there to ward off evil spirits. I'm thinking, what? <laughs> what are you saying in your town's brochure? You know, you're actually advertising this, that we're warding off evil spirits? I just want to interrupt you for a second because you sent chills down my spine when you mentioned that all these serial killers had grown up in the same area. Two of Canada's biggest serial killers, Paul Bernardo, who ended up marrying Carla Homolka, they became known as the Barbie and Ken um, right. murderers, and another guy by the name of Colonel Williams, anyways, he, uh, he was in the military and stuff. Those two guys went to the same high school together. How wow. weird is that? And they're like uh, the biggest serial killers ever in the history of Canada. So you wonder, you know? Yeah, Russell Williams, I apologize. Well, that's interesting. Yeah. I, I've been looking at that, looking at clusters of it. You know, Henry Lee Lucas came from uh, northern Virginia, right across the border from West Virginia. Um, there were a lot of people like that growing up in that particular area of, mm. of West Virginia to Kentucky. And, of course, the famous Hatfield and McCoy uh, feud took place across that border as well, not far from there. 
and Arlen County's down there with all the coal uh, mines and the riots and the union uh, mm -hmm. stuff that was going on in the 60s. So, it, you know, it's a kind of a, an intense area to be in. And, uh, you know, on the positive side, you had the Judds from Ashland, Kentucky, you know, so Naomi Judd and Ashley and everybody from Winona from from Ashland, or at least Naomi was, and I think Ashley was born there as well. Something has to balance the evil. Something has to. And Chuck Woolery, come on. There you go. All from Ashland, Kentucky. So it's a, you know, it was a fascinating place, and I spent more time than I thought I would there because I just kept researching the town. And the town actually was uh, host, you might say, to a really strange and bizarre tragedy as well. I mean, Manson grew up in a town where there was a massacre of people and a horrendous murder of, of children on Christmas Eve. Uh, it was called the Ashland Tragedy or the Ashland uh, Massacre. If you go to Ashland, people will, will talk about it, remember it. And it was a, you know, end of the 19th century, there was um, uh, three children, including one uh, handicapped boy and two girls, were left alone in a cabin in Ashland on Christmas. Uh, the father went away, I think, to work, and the mother went away to visit some relatives. Very strange that they left these these kids by themselves. Well, the as it turns out, uh, I'm not going to go into all the details, but the the, the girls were abused uh, while the boy was there, helpless to do anything about it. And the the house they were in, the cabin, was burned down with them in it. So uh, a horrible situation, a horrible mm -hmm. scene of mass murder. And, of course, Ashland went nuts uh, trying to find the perpetrators, and they found somebody who was a little slow, uh, who confessed that he was involved. He named two other people. Uh, the, the government came in and arrested them. They were going to hold them for trial, but the townspeople wanted them dead. And they managed to hang one of them themselves. They broke into the jail in Ashland and hung one of them. Uh, the other two were someplace else. Uh, they called in the troops. They called in the militia. And they were going to move the, the, the two perpetrators, the two alleged perpetrators, to a different venue uh, for, for trial. And the townspeople weren't having it. They actually attacked the boat that was going up the river, the Ohio River, to take them up to uh, Maysville, uh, I believe it was. And uh, there, was a, there was a bloodshed. They, they opened fire on the people. The people opened fire on the, on the boat. Uh, people died all over this particular uh, event. You won't really hear about this anywhere else except in Ashland. But if you go and look at the details, it was quite horrendous. The whole thing was horrendous. And the newspapers in Cincinnati, Ohio, the nearest large city, uh, the writers there, the journalists, didn't believe that these three had done it. They thought this was trumped up. But eventually they both, they, they all, one of them was killed. The other two went to jail and uh, were eventually executed, I believe, for the crime. And that was the end of it. But there were a lot of people who did not, were not convinced that... Mm -hmm. uh, these three individuals committed the murders. Um, it was just a, a very strange, and I'm sitting there in Ashland thinking, my goodness, and this is where Charles grew up. It's different if it's New York City with a lot of input from a lot of people, a lot of cultures, a lot of stuff going on. But in a small town, it becomes isolated, you know, the Indian mounds and the murders and all of this in a very, very small community. I think it, it becomes more pronounced. The, yeah, the, you're the certainly effects. pushing the percentage of you know, oh. those occurrences happening. I mean, a big urban center, like you mentioned, in in uh, New York, you know, it's going to be, sure. I won't say commonplace, but I don't know how Kind of diluted anyway. Yeah, yeah. Well, right now you have a case in Ohio in Chillicothe, which I write about Chillicothe and Sinister Forces because it's the site of a major Indian burial mound uh, installation, if you want to call it that. And there's, in the last year, uh, there have been six women who disappeared 
in this very small town of about 25, 30,000 people. Uh, in one year's time, six women disappeared. Uh, four bodies, I think, so far have been found and two others have not. And this is in a small town with Indian burial mounds. And the Indian burial mound theme is something that I develop in Sinister Forces because it keeps it seems to keep propping up for one reason or another. Uh, and it comes up in the Manson family stuff and mm -hmm. Henry Lee Lucas and everything else. And, and Chillicothe does. There's a prison uh, in Chillicothe, um, a penitentiary, that is uh, built on the side of an Indian burial mound. So uh, my theme of America as a haunted house is kind of brought up through all of this. It wasn't a theme I started out with. It's one that I sort of came to in, in the process of the of the research. So Manson. Uh, Manson had a horrible, hideous childhood. Hmm. Uh, he was abused, uh, physically at least, um, by the people around him. His mother had reportedly at once uh, sold him for a pitcher of beer. Um, he eventually wound up living with relatives across the border in West Virginia who dressed him in girls' clothes uh, for years. Um, he had a, just a terrible time. He eventually became involved in, in petty uh, crime here and there. He was sent to Boys Town, which might not have been a good idea. Uh, he broke out of Boys Town, uh, eventually made his, he was incarcerated most of his life, made his way to the West Coast, was incarcerated again for check kiting and that sort of thing. Uh, man act violations, bringing women across the border for prostitution, that sort of thing and finally wound up in prison once again. Uh, the last time he was in prison before the Tate-LaBianca killings, he was in prison on, uh, on, the, uh, on the West Coast, uh, Terminal Island, and uh, it was there that he met a number of Scientologists. And uh, the Scientologists, according to him, he went through the Scientology uh, training and became clear. Um, this is Manson's own uh, statements that he became clear whether or not he really was clear we don't know can you give a definition of what clear is a lot of people will know scientology and associate it with tom cruise and sure. that's the extent of it could you just give a quick definition yeah scientology takes us in a lot of different directions as you know um and it can take us to some very strange places but briefly scientology is kind of a psychotherapy although they would hate that term uh, psychotherapy kind of a process where you go through and you rid yourself of negative emotions that are the result of an inheritance that goes back generations to the beginning of time and what you're trying to do is get clear of all of these these obstacles within yourself and then go to next higher levels and higher levels but you have to get clear first that's sort of the first major hurdle in becoming a Scientologist is getting clear mm -hmm. and then there's different levels past that that goes on forever uh, with greater and greater uh, revelations uh, concerning the real secrets of Scientology. But you have to be clear first. If you're not clear, you're still in the process of becoming uh, a human being as far as L. Ron Hubbard was concerned. Mm -hmm. So clear is, is that. And, you know, so to become clear in prison right away is bizarre. Um, and who was actually, you know, responsible for this? It turns out there were Scientologists visiting that prison mm -hmm. uh, and conducting these these treatments on prisoners. So it might have been something that was sanctioned by the prison. But no matter what, uh, Manson, according to him, became clear. Uh, and he left that prison. Uh, he begged to stay in the prison. He, he was not the kind of person who could live without being institutionalized. Uh, he kind of knew he wasn't going to make it on the outside, but they, they kicked him out anyway, basically. And he headed down to San Francisco, uh, down into California, and started collecting uh, people around him uh, 
with this weird combination of politics and religion and spirituality and Scientology thrown in all together with it, as well as some philosophy from a group called the Process Church of the Final yeah. Judgment. Yeah. I um, should mention, folks, this is the... Um, uh, the peace and love era of the, uh, the 60s. It was very common for a group of people to uh, to go out and rent a farmhouse and, and start a commune, couples together and raise families and things of that nature. I'll, go, I'll let Peter pick it up right there. Well, you're absolutely right. It wasn't that unusual to find a bunch of young people, quote-unquote hippies, uh, living together on a farm, on a commune somewhere, even on an abandoned ranch, which is how eventually the Manson family wound up. But Charlie... You know, he had the gift of gap. He was very—he was a short, uh, sh- short of stature, but he had uh, charisma of some kind, and he was able to really con a lot of people mm. uh, into following him. And he would give them drugs, and he would uh, get them to go out and steal for him, or get drugs for him. And he would get involved with biker gangs and all sorts of things. He was a—he was an outlaw, and proud of it. And for some reason, in the 1960s, this was a, a lifestyle that you know attracted a, a large number of followers. The extent of Manson's family is usually reduced to a number of women who are around him and one or two males, but actually the family was much larger than that. Uh, there are a lot of people who were connected to it. It wasn't an actual cult where they carried cards that says we're members of the family. It was a very loose association of people. But uh, Manson was the leader. He was the uh, the instigator, the leader, the, the, uh, the charismatic leader of the group. Peter, was he seen as some kind of messianic leader? There's a big cult here in Canada called the Raelians. That's yeah. yeah, you know about those guys. And sure. folks, uh, just Google them. I don't want to go take up too much of Peter's time. But essentially, there's a kind of messianic leader um, that gets involved. I think at Jonestown, the same type of thing. All these lost souls, God love them. They they kind of latch on to this person that says they're going to save them. Oh yeah, we're experiencing that right now in the United States. I was um, going to say it, but I made that association a long time ago. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, we better not mention the T word because... No, we're uh, not. We're not yes, we're not we better not. Yeah. But anyway, you word. will have hmm. these charismatic leaders uh, who are all about, you know, uh, saving people, basically, and pointing out who the enemies are. And it is a messianic call. I mean, Manson's call was messianic. I mean, it was deliberately so. He was getting messages from Beatles records. He was getting messages from the Bible. He was reinterpreting the entire world around his own worldview, which is what a messianic leader does. It's a kind of, um, you know, re- reformatting of the hard drive. You know, so people would come to him, and these were people who came from, for the most part, very solid middle class backgrounds, even sort of upper class backgrounds. You had people with very good pedigrees, people whose parents were making pretty good money in in uh, in industry. Uh, in various in various ways, and Manson would attract these people to him. Uh, it was a sort of a free sex, drugs and rock and roll kind of an environment, and it was liberating for a lot of these young people. They they really did feel they were onto something, and Manson slowly began to twist the message into a racial one. Uh, Manson believed that there should be a race war in the United States, and that uh, if the if there was enough of a race war, then the white race would eventually get wise, rise up, and destroy the black race, and there would be peace and harmony in the United States. And this was one of Manson's uh, theories that he promulgated. It was only one of many, though. We don't really know if Manson we know, was consistent where all of this was concerned. But the ideas, supposedly, behind the Tate-LaBianca killings was to do this, was to kill people who were prominent and blame it on 
uh, uh, Black Panthers, you know, the Black Liberation uh, Army or something like that, to try to blame uh, other races for it and, you know, the, the movements that people were so afraid of in those days. To start Especially the getting going. Get it going, yeah. And they were going to go and hide out in the desert, the Manson family, with their dune buggies. Uh, it was a dune buggy army. And they were going to go and hide in the desert and wait until all the dust cleared, and they were going to come out and take over the world. Uh, that's sort of what Manson was up to. Heck of a plan. Heck of well a plan. thought out. Yeah. yeah. Just a yeah. quick question, yes. getting back to Scientology and Manson. Did they ever ostracize him, give him the boot? They never officially did, as far as I know. Hmm, um, okay. The person who uh, uh, did the e-meter stuff and did the, you know, the, yeah. the audit of of Manson is known. Uh, he also was a friend of uh, of Squeaky Frummy. I believe her name is pronounced Frummy, not from uh, Squeaky. Anyway, a very famous Manson follower. Yeah. Uh, I think they were friends, and I think she uh, maybe had taken some auditing with. Uh, with this guy as well. So I mentioned in the book, they seem to have been, you know, real uh, Scientology people around them, but I don't think they ever actually officially disavowed him. One group that didn't, of course, was the Process Church of the Final Judgment, which came out of Scientology. So here's, uh, you know, a further wrinkle in this whole thing. And the Process Church started about the time, well, late 1960s, uh, a couple of disaffected Scientologists from the London office uh, left and created their own group called the Process Church of the Final Judgment, um, and started that up, and it became sort of well-known for a while. They had magazines that they produced, that they published. Um, they worshipped three different gods, you know, all at the same time. And uh, Manson became involved with them to the point that he, he wrote an article for them that was published in one of the Process magazines. So the connection between Manson and the Process is absolute. And when, Abs when Manson was eventually arrested for the crimes and in jail, he was visited by Process Church people. We don't know what was discussed, mm. you know, but Manson kept insisting that he was the real leader of the Process Church. He kept identifying himself with Roger de Grimston, who was the, uh, Robert Monroe, who was uh, sometimes called, who was the leader with his wife of the uh, Process Church. And his wife believed that she was a reincarnation of Joseph Goebbels. So there you go. You know, this was sort of a Nazi, satanic, um, Jehovah thing all mixed in together. It was very hard to take apart, but they were very they're very prominent in those days. They were all over the place. I saw them in New York City. You know, the, the process was everywhere. Uh, they were they had this very big uh, intention to proselytize, and they got their name, the Process Church, and their incorporation in the United States from a very strange place. Um, you have to hold on to your hats for this because it's not going to sound rational, but this is this is fact. It's documented and it's true. The person who incorporated them and who came up with the name was a lawyer by the name of Tommy Jude Baumler. Tommy Jude Baumler worked out of Guy Bannister's detective agency in New Orleans. Oh my. Same place where David Ferry, Jack Martin, and as we know, Lee Harvey Oswald worked. He was part of that whole operation, Tommy Baumler. He was famous. And it was after, shortly obviously, after the Kennedy assassination that Baumler incorporated the Process Church of the Final Judgment. Baumler was also a bishop in a fake church, which I talk about a lot in Sinister Forces because it's quite relevant, actually. Um, so many strings of coincidence are entangled in, when you start looking at Manson, 
and the assassinations, you are suddenly in the you're you're down the look the the rabbit hole. Yeah. Peter, was that the same church David Ferry was trying to get into and had been kicked out because of his homosexuality? Well, it's the same church, yes, and the same yeah. church Jack Martin believed to uh, uh, belonged to. But I don't think David Ferry was ever actually kicked out for homosexuality. Uh, okay. He was he tried to become a Catholic uh, priest and he was kicked out of that. I see. Uh, okay. But then he joined this church under a guy called Carl Stanley, once again in Kentucky. And Carl Stanley was a con man with a long rap sheet, but he was the, the archbishop of his own church, the American Orthodox Catholic Church. And there was a branch of this in New York City with the same name. David Ferry, Jack Martin, they all belonged to the Carl Stanley Church. Uh, the Carl Stanley Archdiocese, let's put it that way. Jack Martin, I know for sure, because I, I've seen his papers, is uh, was consecrated a bishop in, in that church. He was. I never I I didn't know David, that, Peter. He just yeah. educated me. Jack Martin, folks, uh, was, um, uh, boy, how am I going to do this very quickly? Guy Bannister in the movie JFK, that's the best way to, uh, to figure sure. out who Guy Bannister is. Uh, Jack Martin worked for Guy Bannister, and he's the one that called J uh, Jim Garrison to tell him that David Ferry may have been the pilot to usher the assassins out of Dallas on November 22, 1963. David Ferry, Jack Martin, Guy Bannister were all working together running guns to Cuba. Right. Reader's Digest very quickly, folks, just sure. for some context. And, you know, the whole Jack Martin thing, was he was played by Jack Lemmon in the movie JFK. Yes, he was. Yeah. Uh, and Joe Pesci was uh, David Ferry. David Ferry. Yeah. Um, David Ferry was in the American Orthodox Catholic Church. There's no doubt about that. Jack Martin, we have so much documentation on his role, and I spoke to bishops from various denominations of the time who knew Jack Martin. You know, and Jack Martin stayed a bishop to the very end of his life. He was still operating as a bishop in that church in, into the 1970s until he died. So he, I have photographs of him dressed in priestly robes. Son of a gun. Yeah, there's, there's no, no mystery about it. Martin was, but he, he, what he was doing, however, had less to do with religion than it had to do with covert operations. Uh, one bishop told me, a very famous man who, who passed away uh, a little while ago, Bishop George Augustine Hyde. Uh, it's not a name that most people would know, but he was sort of notorious in, in certain circles. I met and I spoke with him and I communicated with him over a long period of time. And he told me that if you needed anybody checked out, if you needed background check on somebody, to you know if they had a criminal background or anything like that, you called Jack Martin, he'd find out for you. Jack Martin was connected. I don't understand how he was connected because he's portrayed as this sort of listless, lazy, drunk, uh, you know, virtually homeless. And yet uh, he had the chops to actually do background checks for people. Um, and to make even further clarification, the American Orthodox Catholic Church was investigated by Jim Garrison. Um, and he was just totally confused as to what their role might have been. And I would have been able to help him out in that had I known that Garrison was investigating them because I was involved with that church in 1968-69. Uh, their headquarters was in the Bronx, where I lived, and it's a long story. And when we get back to Sirhan and Manson, we can do that if we have time. I'm just very, teasing everybody. We'll get, okay. we'll have very quickly, folks, Jim Garrison in the movie JFK, Costner plays him, Kevin Costner, and right. he, he was the one that brought the first and only uh, case against a fellow by the name of Clay Shaw uh, that he believed had 
uh, a connection to the Kennedy assassination. We'll let it go at that and watch the movie sure. JFK and all these. Oh, watch the movie definitely. Familiar. If yeah, if you, if you watch the movie, you'll know who the players are, and yeah. this will become a little clearer. But yeah. I have a letter that Jim Garrison um, wrote to the House Subcommittee on Assassinations, in which he said, "I don't know what to make of these of these weird churches." He says, "But they're in there somewhere. I don't know what to make of them. You know, you should look into it. You know, more." And they never did, of course. I mean, there's no record that they ever did. Um, but I also have a letter when the Garrison files were finally released. I was sort of first online to get a copy of that. And there was a letter uh, to Jim Garrison from the man who was my superior in the American Orthodox Catholic Church to Jim Garrison, written maybe six months before I got involved with the church, saying, when you're done with Jack Martin, send him back to us. So the connection between Jack Martin and the churches, the fake churches, the ones I was involved with, as, as well as the one in Kentucky, is the same group. They were all connected together, and I know from personal experience the church was not a church. You know, it was all, it was a front. It was a, it was a covert operations front. It was uh, used to help move agents in and out of foreign countries uh, and to do anything that they needed to have done, I guess. Because in those days, in the 1960s, nobody questioned somebody in a clerical collar. If you were wore a clerical collar, you had a priestly robe. People let you travel for free. They, you could go into a hospital uh, at any time of the day or night to visit a sick patient who might then suddenly wind up dead in a couple of hours. Hmm. Uh, all of these things were possible if you were if you were a priest. Today, a bit harder to get away with. But in those days, very easy. Who was and, fronting them? What was the, the foundation of these churches? I can show you letters that were written to me by bishops who were involved with this. Mm -hmm. um, once again, everything I'm telling you, I have documentation to back up. This is very important to me. me and too. I hope it's yeah. important to you. And also the listeners. That's why I love that's having you on, Peter. When I yeah. said you, I know it's important <laughs> to you, Brent. Yeah. Um, the letter states that one of the reasons some of the bishops left the American Orthodox Catholic Church was because the head of it in New York City had developed a relationship with J. Edgar Hoover. And in order for you to belong to the church, you had to be cleared by Hoover himself. Hoover was somehow on the board of directors of the church. Holy cow. So there are letters stating this bluntly. And Carl Stanley, now I know your listeners are getting very confused here, but Carl Stanley was the head of the church in Kentucky. Okay. okay that church, uh, David Ferry, Jack Martin, all these guys belong to the Carl Stanley branch of the church. Carl Stanley was summoned to New York for that reason to be investigated by Hoover, you know, to be fingerprinted, I suppose, and to have a background check done. And he went to New York and uh, visited uh, Archbishop Vladimir Profeta, a man I'll never forget, visited him, uh, left New York, went back to Kentucky, and died almost the following day. Holy cow. So he was, he was wiped out. Uh, Stanley was a difficult guy for them to have used because he was a con man and he had a long rap sheet um, and he had strange connections back to, to churches in Canada, by the way. Uh, this, this road leads up into Canada as well, specifically into Toronto, uh, but into, you know, parts east and west. Uh, there's a very famous bishop up there at the time who was running a paper mill, a diploma mill, whatever you want to call it. He was a bishop's mill. He was consecrating bishops left and right who weren't really bishops and mm -hmm. neither was he. Um, 
And uh, they were connected to Carl Stanley, and Stanley connected to David Ferry and Jack Martin and everything else. It's a demi-monde. This is a, a, an underground kind of world that you have to really get into to understand. But their fingerprints are all over this. They're all over assassinations, murders, covert ops. Uh, one of the bishops that I knew personally for a while in New York was implicated in some of the, the weird stuff going on in the Balkans during the, the Civil War that was taking place there. His name mm. propped up in Italian intelligence uh, documents, um, and so did the church name again. So they were, you know, Iran-Contra, they were involved in that as well. Their fingerprints mm. you know, extend for, until the 80s and 90s at least. So, where was I? <laughs> <laughs> Do you see what I mean? This is I, a really well. This is this is the beauty. This is why there's three books, folks. By yeah. the way, because he, he ties them all together, and uh, he ties them all together, and I can't recommend these books enough because uh, I've gone through them and read them. Um, www.nightfrightshow.com. Peter Lavenda is our, our guest tonight, and as you can see, I hope I'm not holding it upside down, and I am. They're very good. Yeah. Okay. Good job there, Brent. This one's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Three books, folks. Sinister forces. Uh, just click on the book covers, order them from the comfort of your own home, and uh, get filled in on, on all these incredible connections. You know, he goes back even further. I was trying to pick a, a a point where we could jump in, and you know, you could go back to the t you could go right back to, to Christ's time and Muhammad and everything else, and and sure. you know, um, and how it all connects and just keeps driving forward. And there's some kind of evil energy behind it all. Okay, let's let's go right away. Then uh, we were talking about the Tate LaBianca murders. Can we talk about those, and then we'll jump to Bobby Kennedy's assassination, which ties into Sirhan. Let's let's do it a little bit in reverse. Okay, um, because of the timeline. Okay. Um, this is a story, boys and girls, that you're not going to believe when I tell you. It's one of those things that you're going to say, no, not possible, but it, it happened. I should warn you, we only have 10 minutes. I'm going to do it. I'm going to make Let's this offer on. to you. It, we have a second hour. If you want to stick around for the second hour, you're more than welcome. That could happen. Okay. So right now we So you can relax. Minutes. Okay. That's it, folks. But, but if you had beer. somebody else scheduled, uh, I don't want to... No, I don't. I don't. Oh. I purposely didn't. <laughs> <laughs> no pressure, Peter. <laughs> okay. All right. I see but where I this is going. I three books, and it's Peter... And, you know, going to need at least two hours to get through this, so... Yeah, I think so. Okay. Well, this, this is one of those stories that, you know, you can tell on Halloween. It's one of those things that is very, very strange. But the facts are all there. There was a famous film director known as John Frankenheimer. Uh, he did movies uh, more recently, recent films like uh, Ronin, uh, Reindeer Games, uh, films like that. He did Birdman of Alcatraz. There you go. Uh, he did Seven Days in May. Yeah, fantastic movie. And he did a film called The Manchurian Candidate. Bingo. The Manchurian Candidate starred Frank Sinatra, Lawrence Harvey, Angela Lansbury. Just now, redone a few years ago with Denzel Washington, by the way, folks, right. for the younger folk. For those of you, yes. Not as gray as, as me. Um, but the, there was a problem with the Manchurian candidate because it's about a, an assassination of a presidential candidate. And it's an assassination that's being run by the communists, whether it's Russian or, or Chinese. Anyway, the Koreans. Um, an American prisoner of war is brainwashed. Uh, in a very bizarre way by 
they could be Russians, they could be Chinese, we don't know. It's like everybody is there. And he comes back to the United States, and uh, his whole platoon comes back with him. And they're all saying all the time, you know, so-and-so, I forget the name that was used then, uh, is a great uh, patriot, a great American, you know, and, and a war hero and everything. They would say these program praises over and over again. And he starts, you know, he becomes very politically involved. His mother is Angela Lansbury. And uh, this is Lawrence Harvey. And he's, uh, he's being manipulated by Angela Lansbury with a deck of cards. Uh, and there's like a mind control thing happening. This was a novel by Richard Condon. It was very, very famous. And the Manchurian candidate's Manchurian because he was made in Manchuria. He was created through a mind control thing. So this American soldier became totally brainwashed and sent back to the United States uh, to commit an assassination. Um, I don't go to the whole plot because that would be pointless. Let's just say that it's about a political assassination. It's starring these very famous stars. It hits the, the theaters, and suddenly President Kennedy is assassinated. Frankenheimer feels terrible guilt over this. He was friendly with the Kennedy family. He, I mean, the whole thing destroyed him. He pulled the film from the yep. theaters, and it was not seen for, I think, about 30 years. I think we didn't, that film was not released again until the late 80s, maybe early 90s, I forget when. But that film was taken off the, the, the market. You could not see it. It was not available. Mm -hmm. um, he was you know, mortified by the fact that this had happened. Okay, we fast forward five more years. It's now 1968. In fact, it's today. Because today, as Brent and I are, are speaking, is the, um, the California primary, which is taking place for president. So you have uh, Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders and everybody's in California. Uh, trying to win the California primary. Well, back in 1968, 48 years ago, today, there's a dinner party at Malibu, and it's John Frankenheimer's house, and he has a special spread for his good friend, Robert F. Kennedy, mm. and Kennedy's wife and four of their children. They're all at the dinner party that Frankenheimer is throwing for his good friend. He's wishing him all the best. Um, and who else is at that dinner party? Roman Polanski and his wife, Sharon Tate. They are all at that dinner party. Small party, wasn't a lot of people. Tate, Polanski, Bobby Kennedy, his wife and four children, and Frankenheimer. Tate, Polanski are, in the, are from Hollywood, folks, just to let you know, actors and uh, movie maker. Well, Roman Polanski, for instance, a famous film director, I think people know now he's in the news again because they're trying to extradite him from Poland. That's right. Um, yeah. Polanski, the famous film director of a movie called Rosemary's Baby, uh, which was a film about with Mia Farrow, who became Frank Sinatra's lover, the whole thing. Anyway, Rosemary's Baby is about a satanic cult uh, and the birth of a baby on June 6, 1966, uh, which was supposed to be the, the, the son of Satan. Notice the date, because June 6th, 66, and now we're talking about June 7th, 68, which is the dinner party, which is the California primary, with Roman Polanski, who directed the film, uh, in attendance uh, at the dinner party. So, Frankenheimer drives Bobby Kennedy and his entourage to the Ambassador Hotel, where they're going to wait for the returns coming in from the primary. And of course, Bobby Kennedy wins the California primary, 
Uh, he makes his famous speech. It's on to Chicago, which is where the convention was going to be, the Democratic National Convention. And he turns around and he starts to leave through the kitchen of the Ambassador Hotel. And someone comes up and shoots him and kills him. And Bobby Kennedy is then killed. And that's the end of the, the Kennedy's approach uh, to the White House. I mean, Jack had been killed five years earlier. Right. Now Bobby is dead. The person arrested for the assassination is Sirhan Bishara Sirhan, a Palestinian, a Christian Palestinian, by the way, by the way, not a Muslim. And Sirhan was deeply involved in the occult. He had gone to meetings of the Theosophical Society. He belonged to the Rosicrucian Order, uh, AMORC. In those days, they advertised in the back of every magazine imaginable. Uh, he signed up for all of that stuff. He was reading Blavatsky's stuff, uh, Madame Blavatsky, who was the founder of the Theosophical Society. He was also going to nightclubs where they had hypnotists uh, playing, you know, mm -hmm. the typical nightclub hypnosis thing where they turn you into a chicken or something and everybody laughs. Uh, so Sirhan was going to that. And one of the hypnotists that he ran into was a man called William Bryan, who had worked for CIA uh, doing hypnosis. Uh, there's a lot of very strange stuff about Bryan. He kind of dropped out of sight shortly after all of this. But anyway, there's Sirhan shoots Kennedy's, so they say. As we know now, it looks like there were two guns involved. There were more bullets than Sirhan had. And of course, there was the girl in the polka dot dress. For those of you who remember this assassination, yeah. this girl in the polka dot dress was seen by a lot of people, very happy, running down the stairs saying, we got him, we killed him, we killed him. Uh, they never found that girl in the polka dot dress. She's become kind of an icon to those of us of a certain age. Uh, this sort of a stand-in for, you know, mystery and Laura Palmer and Twin Peaks and everything else. So for us, <laughs> it's the They did find her dress, though, apparently. According to Lisa Pease, uh, came on, they found her dress uh, several blocks away, uh, along with her bra and panties. It's like she made a complete change and just dropped them in the, in the um, I guess, in, in the back of uh, some kind of uh, dumpster, to put it mildly. Yeah. Why would... <laughs> I don't know. I could see the dress, but the underwear? I don't get it either. I don't Especially get it. if you're in a rush. So. Yeah. yeah. It's very strange. Yeah. Maybe it was the rapture. I don't know. So, anyway, fast forward just a day or two. Yeah. Bobby Kennedy is going to be buried. But there's going to be a funeral first. It's going to be in St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York City. And everybody and his brother is going to be there. I mean, every politician, whoever got security clearance to go to this, whoever was invited by the Kennedy family, uh, everyone is going to be at this funeral at St. Patrick's Cathedral, including yours truly, because why not? I'm in the Bronx. A friend of mine and I are very busy with these weird churches, setting up our own weird church. Uh, we're in high school. I'm 17 years old at the time. My friend had just turned, actually around today, he had just turned... Uh, uh, 18. So we dress up in our finest homemade, you know, priest's outfits. And we go down to the cathedral. For me, Bobby Kennedy was, of course, an icon. And Bobby Kennedy represented everything that was good about uh, the American political system at that time. Mm -hmm. We had a lot of faith in Bobby Kennedy uh, to really make a lot of change in the world, to get us out of Vietnam, to do a lot of things. If you listen to Bobby Kennedy's speeches, he talked about climate change. He talked about a lot of things that were ahead of his time, uh, race relations. And all of this was you know, on his plate at the time. We thought this was a person who was going to create a major difference. 
So for me, I wanted to, to get as close to that experience as possible. Um, and for my friend, he just wanted his photograph taken, you know, in the church. Sure. So we went down and we did this. We walked in at night. This is before the funeral the next day. And for some reason, we managed to get in. Uh, one of the people in charge of security kind of just waved us through. We uh, we, we visited the, the casket. Um, the uh, Rose Kennedy and Jackie were there in a pew praying. We didn't waste very much time. We stayed there. We got out. And then the next day, we decided we were going to do this in style. We rented a limousine and uh, from the Bronx, and we went down there to see if we could attend the funeral service itself. Well, as it turned out, the best thing we ever did probably was rent the limousine because nobody says no to a limousine. And the limousine showed up next to the cathedral. The doors were opened, and Secret Service actually ushered us into the cathedral I mean, straight away. Uh, because there was such chaos going on around the time. I'm telling the story for a reason. There's uh, the damn music. Okay, Peter, okay. we're going to be back in four minutes. Okay, folks, Peter Lavenda, don't go anywhere. This is part one of part two. Part two, you'll be able to catch um, on YouTube as well. So uh, we'll be right back. I'm Brent Holland from Night Fight. Next time. Witness accounts. Order yours right now. Nightfrightshow.com.